uh, this morning as we continue to look here in this 10th chapter of John, where Jesus again and again refers back to this metaphor of a shepherd and his sheep, we who are the followers of Christ, the sheep in his flock. I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, Safe in His Arms. Uh, this past week on Saturday, as most of you know, my mother-in-law went home to be with the Lord, and um, we had the funeral on Friday. I had the great honor of preaching that funeral for her. And often, whenever I preach a funeral, I will say things like this. This is a time of mixed emotions. And before we get there, let me just say thank you to you. Thank you for the love that you have expressed to me, to my wife Amy, through your many texts, messages, calls, notes, cards, flowers, and lots and lots of food. My family, our family, was blown away by your expressions of love to us, and so thank you. But again, often in this time of, uh, of a funeral, particularly of a Christian, I'll say we have mixed emotions. For one, there is the emotion of sadness because we've lost someone who's close to us. There is a hole in our lives where she used to be, but there is also this sense of joy because of the promise we have in Jesus, because of the promise of eternity, because Jesus promises that every lamb of his flock will be safe in his arms. And so we trust that truth, that we can face death without fear, without anxiety, without worry, because these promises are as good as God's word. And God's word is true, and God is always true to his word. Well, one of the primary passages which affirms and undergirds this reality about our assurance and about our hope is this passage right here in John chapter 10. And though the promise of the security of the believer being safe in the arms of Jesus is rather simple and straightforward, the truths which undergird that promise are sometimes complex and even difficult to understand and comprehend. But this is, again, undergirded by these deep, profound theological truths that come right from the lips of Jesus here in John 10. So look with me in your Bible as I read our focal passage for today, John 10, verses 22 through 30. This is the inspired word of the living God. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Throughout this Gospel of John, John has been giving us some chronological markers as we've gone through so far these first 10 chapters. And the chronological markers are the Jewish festivals and holidays and feasts that are the annual feasts they would celebrate. 
For instance, we know that Jesus' ministry was, in fact, three years long because John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, records for us in Jesus' time of ministry three distinct Passover feasts, the last Passover feast being the week of Holy Week when he is arrested, executed, and buried in the tomb. And so here he gives us another chronological marker. Uh, He talks about this uh, feast of dedication, the feast of dedication. What is that? Well, this is actually not an annual Jewish holiday that was prescribed in the Mosaic law. This is not something that Moses put forward for us to, for the Jews to celebrate, for instance, in the book of Deuteronomy or Leviticus. This festival was much later in its dedication, and here's what it commemorated. It commemorated a, an event that happened in what's known as the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period, as that word references, is the period between the Testaments, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew. So there's something that happened in 167 BC. This uh, Greek Hellenist king by the name of Antiochus um, Epiphanes, I've got a picture of Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes came in and ransacked Judea and particularly Jerusalem. He executed a harsh persecution upon the Jewish people. And then he did this. He erected a pagan altar inside the Jewish temple. And he had conducted what's been known as the abomination of desolation. What was that? He was sacrificing pigs inside the temple on a pagan altar. So this happened for three years. This was going on after uh, Antiochus took Jerusalem until 164 BC, some three years later, under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus. You may have heard of the Maccabean period or Maccabees. He was known as the hammer of Judea. Look at Judas Maccabeus. I've got a picture of him or a rendition of who he is. He led a revolt against this Antiochus, the oppressors, and he overthrew them. He led them to uh, move them out of Judea. And after their success, they rededicated the temple to God after it had been desecrated for some three years. Now, this rededication of the temple of God in Jerusalem occurred on the 25th day of the Jewish month of Kislev, which that may not mean anything to you, but Kislev happens to fall around the month of December. So they began this festival where they would light candles for eight days in December in the wintertime to celebrate this uh, feat of throwing out their oppressors. Does anybody know what it's called? Hanukkah, right. And so the festival of Hanukkah that Jewish people celebrate today is right here spoken of in John chapter 10. Interestingly, Jesus celebrated it. So he gives us another historical chronological marker of the life and the work of Jesus. This is December, he says. It's in the winter time, and uh, he tells us that Jesus was walking in the temple. I've got a picture of a model of the Jewish temple, and you can see there in the foreground the large open courts. Now, typically when the Bible talks about Jesus teaching in the temple, it would have been in that large open court area where he would be open air preaching. But here in the wintertime, he's not in the open courts. He's in what's known as the colonnade of Solomon. If you look in the background, you see those columns back in the background of that picture. Now go to the next slide. This is a rendition of what maybe the interior would have looked like. And Jesus is there in that colonnade of Solomon. 
And what happens there? Well, we read about that the Jews gathered around him. This is not a hospitable word. They didn't gather around him to have a little, you know, tea time together. They gathered around him to oppress him, to attack him. In fact, John, the gospel writer, uses this exact same word translated gathered around in the book of Revelation. Notice how he transla- we translate it there in Revelation 20. Uh, the Bible says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations there at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So this is the same terminology. These Jewish leaders, these religious leaders in Jerusalem, Jesus is there in this confined space of the colonnade of Solomon, and they gather around him, they surround him, and they're going to ask him a question in this confined space. What was the question? Again, verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I want you to think about the historical context of this question. It's the Feast of Dedication, the remembrance of throwing out the oppressors of the Greek Hellenists who had taken them over in 167 B.C. That's the context historically. They're celebrating this in Jerusalem, and they come to Jesus and they say, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Now, what did they anticipate and expect the Messiah to be? A military conqueror, someone who would come in and throw off the Roman oppressors, those who were occupying Jerusalem. And so their concepts and their ideas about about the Messiah were completely out of alignment with who they saw Jesus to be. Here's Jesus, this Bedouin guru, this prophet who walks around the dusty plains of Judea. He's not even from the southern part of Israel, Judah. He's from the northern part up in the sticks in Galilee. He didn't meet any of their preconceived ideas about what a Messiah would look like. He didn't look anything at all like the type of person who would be this military conqueror who would overthrow their oppressors. So why did they ask him the question? Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Because they wanted to have ample evidence, they thought, to discredit, destroy, and squash this movement that Jesus was leading. Notice again how Jesus responded to their disingenuous question, are you the Christ? Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So Jesus told them plainly and unequivocally he, had, he didn't tell them that he was the Messiah. He just simply alluded to his works that he had done. Interestingly, in John's gospel, Jesus never, in so many words, says, I'm the Messiah, to the Jewish leaders, to the crowds, to large groups of people. Now, he does, but he only does it to individuals. Some of you may remember the encounter Jesus had in John 4 with the woman at the well. The woman at the well and Jesus are having this dialogue, this conversation, and notice verse 25, what the woman says to him. The woman said to him, John 4, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So did Jesus make a clear claim of being the Messiah? Yes, to individuals. But he did not do it publicly 
and broadly and specifically to the religious leaders. He made a private claim, but not publicly because, again, they had this preconceived, distorted notion about this title. But yet he says in verse 25, I told you, and you don't believe. The works I performed that I do in my Father's name witness about me. So Jesus points to some verification about his identity. The works he's accomplished. Now these are unmistakable. These are unquestionable. They couldn't deny that there was miraculous works and miracles associated with the ministry of Jesus. In fact, the last miracle that Jesus performed as recorded in John's gospel, is the miracle of healing a man who was born blind from birth. Blind man, congenital blindness. And do you remember following that miracle, there was a series of interrogations and interviews with not only the man, but also his parents. They brought the parents before the religious leaders. And the parents said, yes, this is our son. Yes, he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. And we don't know who did it. So then they brought in the man who is now healed for the second time. And they said, tell us, how did this happen? And in the final interview with these religious leaders, it's interesting what the previously blind man said to them. Look at John 9, verse 32. The blind man says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, the only explanation I can give to you Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders is that he's from God. That's the only thing I know. This was clear. It was unmistakable. It was straightforward. It was conclusive proof of Jesus's divine identity. But as is the case with most skeptics, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. So for two and a half years, Jesus has been answering the question, are you the Messiah? For two and a half years, the testimony of his works and his miracles were clear. And in spite of it all, they did not believe, even though there was irrefutable proof. And so that begs a question, why not? Why didn't they believe in Jesus? Why didn't they believe he was the Messiah? If he's pointing to his works, which were undeniable, miraculous, irrefutable, all through Israel, why didn't they believe in him? After Jesus made this judgment, this denouncement of their unbelief, he then returns to this familiar shepherd-sheep metaphor that we've seen already here in the Gospel of John chapter 10. And in so doing, he gives us some profound insight into the nature of belief. Why does anyone believe? Why do you believe? Why didn't they believe? Well, it's undergirded by this theological truth that is understood from this metaphor of a shepherd and the sheep. In fact, there are five things from this passage I want us to consider that really form the foundation of why we can know that we know that we know we are safe in his arms. Five things to consider from the passage the first one is this. I want you to notice the cause of belief. The cause of belief. Jesus puts forward a cause and effect statement in verse 26. To these people who are trapped in their unbelief, he reveals why they are trapped in unbelief. He says, but you 
do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, I want you to circle that word because in your outline or on, in your Bible because Jesus is giving the cause of their unbelief. The reason you do not believe is because you are not among my sheep. Now, if you think about that statement, we would have probably said it in the reverse order. We would have likely said, you, do not, you are not one of his sheep because you do not believe. Isn't that how we probably would have said it? Oh, they're not sheep? The reason they're not sheep is because they do not believe. This person's not a sheep because they don't believe. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not one of my sheep. Now, to be clear, this is the divine side of the equation. This is the divine side of salvation. This is the mysteries of the mind of the triune God. Are people held responsible for their unbelief? Yes. Will these religious leaders be judged because they didn't believe in Jesus? Yes. That's the human side. But the divine side, Jesus says, they don't believe because they're not my sheep. We've seen this kind of language kind of looking at both the divine side and the human side of salvation all through the Gospel of John. Let me just remind you of a few. Back in John chapter 3, we have the exchange and conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was this PhD in religious studies, a scholar in Jewish doctrine. He comes to Jesus at night under the cover of darkness. And the first thing he says to Jesus in chapter 3 is this, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So think about it. Fast forward to chapter 10. He says, I've been telling you through my works who I am. Nicodemus, one of these religious leaders back in chapter 3 says, I know you're from God because of the works you've been performing. That's the proof of his identity. So he recognized Jesus's unique nature from the beginning. But in that conversation, Jesus revealed a profound reality about the nature of saving faith. He presents both the human side and the divine side. Again, John 3 is the famous chapter where we have the most familiar verse in the Bible. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, this is the human side, in him should not perish but have eternal life. You must believe. You must express faith. You must trust in Jesus to be saved. That's the human side. At the beginning part of John chapter 3, Jesus gives the divine side of the equation. Notice what he said in verses 6 through 8. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Faith, belief, trust in Jesus is wrought because of the supernatural blowing wind of the Holy Spirit in the dead heart of a human being. You have the human side and the divine side. Let's move forward to John chapter 6. We see Jesus express this same reality. 
In John 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will, not might, not could, not should, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39, and this is the will of him, God the Father, who sent me, that I should lose nothing, safe in his arms, of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you've got the divine side. Everyone, every individual that God the Father gives to God the Son, he will. Raise up on the last day. Then verse, verse 40, the human side. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes, the human side, he will raise up on the last day. This is the same group of people. These are not different people. Human side, divine side. Human side, you got to believe. Divine side, God has given them to the Son. So we saw this exact same reality uh, the last two weeks at the beginning of John chapter 10. We saw it last week when Jesus mentioned these other sheep which is all the saved through all the generations in all nations, tongues, and tribes. Look at John 10, verse 16. Jesus speaking says, and I have other sheep. Again, not I might have some, I could have some. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. That's the divine side of the equation. And what was the cause of the belief For all the sheep throughout the ages, you believe because you're a sheep. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Now, I don't presume to think that this is not on some level contradictory to our minds. Anybody feel a little tension here of contradiction? Sure, it's natural. There's a little... uh, things that are contradictory to us. Some have suggested that this biblical teaching that we see here from Jesus himself, well, if that's true, then we're all just programmed robots and we don't have any choice. That's not true. Clearly, you're responsible for your choices. Clearly, you have a volitional will to make those choices. Now, again, I confess, I don't know how all this goes together. I I can't understand how this connects But God is not contradictory in his own heart and mind. He cannot contradict himself. That's an impossibility. So I chalk it up to this, my minuscule, feeble mind. I can't put these things together in my mind. In fact, notice what Paul said in Romans 11. For who has known the mind of the Lord? That's a rhetorical question. Nobody. Or who has been his counselor? Rhetorical question. Nobody. These realities of the sovereignty of God and the volition of men and how those two work together, that's in the mind of God. That's in the mysteries of the triune God. I can't put them together. But God presents both of these realities all through the Scriptures. We should not deny, even though we can't understand it, we therefore should not deny the divine side of the equation. Why? Because it undergirds this unalterable truth. You are safe in his arms. You are safe in his arms. But secondly, the the divine side of the equation tells us that it is sola gratis, by grace alone that we are saved. But yet we should not deny or minimize this divine side. So that's the first thing. The cause of belief. 
You believe because you're a sheep. Now, you may say, Pastor, you spent about 15 minutes on that first point. Listen, the next ones are going to be much quicker, okay? Well, you'll get home in time for lunch. Here's the second thing I want us to consider from Jesus' teaching to these religious leaders, and that is the call of belief. There's not only the cause of our belief, you believe because you're a sheep, but the call of belief. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. This is the individual, sometimes in theology, called the effectual call. There is a general call. Believe the gospel. We as Christians, we as his church, we as Lookout Valley Baptist Church, we have been given the great divine commission. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We are to issue out the general call. Come to Jesus. Be saved. Be forgiven. That's the general call. But Jesus here refers to the effectual call. My sheep hear my voice. They hear it. They hear the call. Jesus is repeating the same idea he communicated again at the beginning of this chapter. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 10. He says, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. The shepherd doesn't call all these other flocks. He only calls his sheep, and only his sheep follow him because he calls his sheep by their own name. Again, this is the effectual individual call of the shepherd to the sheep. You know what this brings? Security. (laughs) Security. We are safe in the arms of the shepherd. And remember the exchange with Jesus by his opponents just earlier. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? I've been telling you for two and a half years. The works I've been accomplishing, the works I've been performing, but they didn't have ears to hear it. Everyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. They didn't have ears to hear the call, the individual effectual call of the good shepherd. They couldn't hear it. And you see, the ears of the unconverted are dead to the voice of the shepherd unless the shepherd does that supernatural quickening so that you can hear. So Jesus says, this is the call of belief. My sheep hear my voice. Thirdly, notice this, the coming of belief. The coming of belief. You see, not only do true sheep hear the voice of the shepherd, but they come to the voice of the shepherd. He says very simply, they follow me. True sheep, authentic Christians, follow Jesus. That's simply the reality of it. They follow him. So I would ask you, do you believe in Jesus? Have you heard him call you by name? Are you following Jesus in obedience, submitting to his word, obeying his commands? Do you strive to copy the example of Jesus in humility, kindness, love, and holiness? The sheep necessarily follow the shepherd. So there's the cause of belief. You believe because you're a sheep. There's the call of belief. You hear the shepherd's voice. There's the coming of belief. You follow the good shepherd in obedience and trust and dependence. Fourth, the contribution of belief. Number four, the contribution 
of belief. Look at verse 28 again. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. I want you to circle that word, give. We know salvation is a gift. Don't earn it. Can't deserve it. It must be received as a gift. It's a contribution from the shepherd to the sheep. I give them eternal life. The great American theologian Jonathan Edwards put it like this. He said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Isn't that true? Yeah, that's good. You contribute nothing to your salvation. Nada, zilch, zip, except the sin that made it necessary. And this is exactly what Paul meant in Ephesians 2.8, a very familiar verse to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? This, it. What do those pronouns refer to? The grace, salvation, and friend, even the faith. All of it is a gift from God. All of it is not your own doing. You contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And friend, this too is a great assurance to us. Think about it. A gift that later down the road is taken back, is it truly a gift? Some of you have had that experience. Somebody gives you something, maybe a couple weeks later, a month later, maybe years later, hey, I'm going to need back that thing I gave to you before, <laughs> right? Is that a gift? No. A gift is, I contribute this to, the, to you. I give it to you. It's yours. And God will never say, hey, that salvation I purchased with the blood of my son, I'm going to need you to give that back to me. You see how this brings security for the sheep? God will never take back the gift of salvation he has granted to us. Therefore, you can be sure you have eternal life. You can be sure that you always will have it. But if so far you've not been convinced of the eternal security of every sheep in the shepherd's fold, if so far the fact that the cause of belief, that the sheep believe because they are sheep, if you haven't been convinced by the call of belief that the shepherd calls his own sheep by name to come, if you haven't been uh, convinced by the coming of the sheep that only those sheep empowered by the quickening work of the Holy Spirit follow the shepherd, if you haven't been convinced by the contribution of the sheep of belief that, yes, you have been given all that's necessary. You contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. If that doesn't convince you of eternal security, maybe this fifth one will. I want you to consider the covenant of belief. There is a covenant, not so much a covenant with Jesus, the shepherd, and the sheep, but a covenant between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they do not lie to each other, and they do not break promises to one another. Very familiar, but notice it in the context of what we're talking about. Verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is probably the prime passage that shows the eternal security of the believer. No one, nothing can snatch us out of God the Son's hand and God the Father's hand. Because listen, if your security is based on the fact that you raised your hand during some meeting, you walked an aisle, you cried at an altar, you filled out a card, you threw a pine cone in the campfire at camp, I've done all those things. If your security is based on those things, it's only as good as those things. But if your security is based on the fact that the good shepherd says in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Friend, there are predators, spiritual and human, psychological, that are seeking to steal you from the shepherd. But the good shepherd says of every sheep, no predator can snatch you out of my hands. Isn't that good news? And if that's not enough, he says, in the Father that's greater than all, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. You are secure. There ain't no wolf that can take you from the God of the universe. This is the covenant. You are eternally secure. And I already pointed out from John 6, 39, that, that Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing not a single one of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. You are secure in the hands of the shepherd. I will keep my covenant with the Father. In a few months, we'll get to the 17th chapter of John, where we find the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed in the upper room just before he was betrayed and arrested and in John 17, that high priestly prayer is he's speaking with the Father, this one with whom he has the covenant of security of us, we who are his sheep. Notice what Jesus prays. Jesus says to the Father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's Judas Iscariot, and friend, Judas was never a true sheep. He was always a pretender. And Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, that intimate conversation between him and the Father, he says, Father, I've not lost a one. I've kept them. I've guarded them. Nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hands. And then Jesus says, if that's not convincing enough, again, the Father, who is greater than all, has hold of the sheep, and nothing, no one, can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Here's the deal. Listen. Your security as a believer does not depend upon how tightly you can hold on to God, but how tightly he can hold on to you. Let me say that again. Your security as a Christian does not depend upon how tightly you can hold on to God, but how tightly he can hold on to you. Every aspect of Jesus' description of the relationship between a sheep and the good shepherd points to and undergirds the security of the believer. As sheep, we are safe in his arms. On Thursday, as I was working on this message and meditating on these particular truths, my mind went to what's called the golden chain of salvation. Some of you have heard of that terminology or that heading over this one particular passage in Romans chapter 8. 
In Romans 8, it's a very familiar passage, but it, it looks to eternity past, before anything was anything, just the mind of the triune God, and it looks forward to eternity future forever and ever and always. And then Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins to link together these links of the chain of our salvation from eternity past, before creation, to eternity future, ever and ever and always. Notice the golden links of this chain of salvation, five of them. For those whom he foreknew before anything was anything, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Unequivocal promise in this golden chain of salvation. But as I meditated on this passage, I didn't read this in a commentary, so maybe if I'm wrong, you can throw tomatoes at me later. But I saw, as I turned to this passage this week on Thursday, and I read these two verses, I said, this parallels perfectly what Jesus says in John 10. It's amazing. They, they match up perfectly. Look at the next slide. Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, Jesus says, I know them Paul says, those whom he predestined, Jesus said, my sheep. Paul says, those whom he called, Jesus said, they hear my voice. Paul says, those whom he justified, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Paul says, he also glorified, and Jesus says, they will never perish. This is the security of the believer. We are safe in the arms of our Savior and again, your security is not dependent upon you holding on to him, but him holding on to you. What's amazing is Paul concludes this chapter 8, this Mount Everest of theological truth, with such secure words. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things who shall bring any charge against God's elect God is the one who justifies who shall condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of the father who is making intercession on our behalf who shall separate us from the love of Christ so tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, we are being killed all the day long. We are like sheep being led to the slaughter. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the security of the believer. He says, I know my sheep. My sheep know me. 
and I'm not going to lose a one of them. Friend, if you came in here this morning wondering, doubting, am I going to make it to the end? He's holding on to you. He's holding on to you. I love how the modern hymn writer Keith Getty took this passage and poetically described our security in Christ. He said, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. We're going to close by singing this profound hymn of faith. And that leads to my last thought, and it's the exact same last thought from last Sunday. It's this. The shepherd of our souls will not lose any of his sheep, but will bring each and every one to full redemption. And for this truth, I want to say hallelujah. Glory to God. Let's go to him in prayer.